Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Ashish Thakar, is an African entrepreneur who started his business at the age of 15, having just escaped from the Rwanda genocide. That business, the Mara Group, is now a multi-billion dollar enterprise headquartered in Dubai and with operations in 22 African countries. I met Ashish a few weeks ago at a conference in Dubai and learned just enough about his personal story to know that I needed to speak with him for a podcast episode. And it's an intense story, not only of his own escape from the Rwandan genocide, but his parents in the 1970s were forced to flee Idi Amin's Uganda. Ashish tells much of his family history and the story of the founding of the Mara Group in his new book, The Lion Awakes, Adventures in Africa's Economic Miracle. Ashish is also the founder of the Mara Foundation, the work of which we discuss, and he was recently named the chair of the United Nations Foundation's Global Entrepreneurs Council. As I mentioned, this episode gets pretty intense at times, particularly when he discusses his own escape from Rwanda in 1994. And I just want to thank Ashish for speaking so openly about what was obviously a very traumatic moment in his life. And just a quick note before we start, as always, you can hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I can cover. Also send me an email via globaldispatchespodcast.com if you want to get in touch with me for any reason. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And now here is my conversation with Ashish Thakar. You know, in the early 1900s is when there was a huge uh, migration from India into uh, East Africa, particularly Uganda, to build a railway line, unskilled and skilled labor, uh, but to build railway because there was experience in that field. And that's when there was a lot of families that moved in early 1900s, whereas actually in, in my family's case, we actually moved earlier than that. So we had shifted in 1890. My grandfather, great-grandfather actually, my great-grandfather actually came on the basis of just purely looking for trading opportunities and seeing, you know, um, where it kind of ends up. So he, he sailed by boat from Gujarat uh, in India to, to East Africa and then went inwards into Uganda particularly um, and went in and settled in a small village about uh, two hours away from Kampala. And that's where he set up a little trading outfit, which was uh, selling... Um, uh, maize, rice, uh, sugar, salt, etc. Just general commodities in, in a very small shop. And was it Uganda um, so picked how- because it was part of like the broader British Empire? Um, it was because, I mean, the East African community as a whole was was a part of the British Empire. Um, but 
Uganda particularly just because they went inwards and they just kind of thought that, you know, they just wanted to find deeper opportunities, which if you think about it, it's pretty gutsy, the fact that, um, you know, there was zero communication, zero information flow, um, no know-how where you're going to end up. Um, you're going to sail by sea for 45 days uh, and just don't know what's going to happen. And uh, so it was quite amazing that, that uh, my ancestors did that. Um, and as a result, frankly, um, our entire family moved out of India uh, in, in the late uh, 1800s. And therefore, we have no family in India uh, today. Uh, all of our family has been spread across East Africa. And then obviously, post-1972, um, majority went to England, but some went to the U.S. and Sweden. So are there like myths hand, handed down in your family about your great-grandfather's journey? I mean, I, I like in, in a lot of, you know, at least like Jewish migration from Eastern Europe to the United States, there are these kind of myths uh, about hardships endured or funny things that happen or, or curious endeavors. Uh, are, are there any kind of stories from that, um, from, from that trip that are just kind of mytholog- mythologized by your family? Do you know, to be honest, it's a really good question. I think, um, you know, when you think about the the activities thereafter, I think they kind of took over. So 1972, where Idi Amin kicked everybody out, and I wasn't alive at the time. Um, by my, my parents, uh, after they got married, my mother's from Tanzania. Her family moved to Tanzania in 1920. Um, and she was born in the Mara region in Tanzania, and therefore uh, the, the company and the foundation are called Mara. But, you know, um, they met uh, in Uganda and she was living in a, in a small village in Tanzania called Mwanza. Um, so Mwanza to Dar es Salaam is about uh, 1,600 kilometers, uh, whereas, and that, that could take, you know, it could take two days. Uh, whereas from Mwanza to Kampala, because there's a Lake Victoria right in the middle, uh, you can just go by ferry boat and get there within a few hours. So everybody from Wanza, their outing to a real city was to Kampala, and that's how my parents met. And after they got married, they lived in Kenya and Rwanda and then moved back to Uganda, and then the 1972 incident happened. Mm-hmm. Now, for a lot of families who went through that, because our family wasn't unique in that sense, there was quite a few Asian families who had who had gone through the Idi Amin saga, and a lot of um, indigenous Ugandan families who had also suffered greatly uh, with this happening. But, um, you know, when we moved back, a lot of other families just kind of decided to just close that chapter, you know, and never talk about it, never really acknowledge it fully, uh, never embrace it, or they ended up hating it uh, because of what happened. Whereas in my case, my family was just like in love with it. And I would hear nonstop stories about Kampala and what it was like living between Kampala and Bombo, which is the small village that my father's from and my grandmother was born in as well. And just all of those stories. And therefore, my my story, the storytelling days for me were really around Uganda uh, and pre-72 rather than the late 1800s because so much had happened for them mm-hmm. uh, in that in the 70s. Um, and then obviously after that is when is when they just decided that, look, you know, we really want to go back home. We want to go back to Africa. So, so as a result, mm-hmm. yeah. What, so what do your parents, I, I guess, tell you about how they experienced the uh, Idi Amin era? Like how did they know things were going to turn south very quickly? 
I don't think they did. Uh, you know, when, when everybody announced it and when everybody was leaving, my father was, and, and he's just an amazing individual, um, but he was just really focused on how to help people, right? So um, how to help people get out okay, how to make sure that nobody tries to go against the system, how do you make sure that nobody gets hurt in this process? And he was just really dedicated and focused to that cause. Um, and as a result, you know, he, I, I don't think he kind of went into what's going to happen to them next. Like, he was really focused on on just making sure his family is safe and or people he he knows are are, are safe. And he had um, very good friends um, in the military because he used to play football a lot, and he used to play football with all the uh, the army officials, etc. And and he had friends, so he would kind of just make sure that everyone's okay in general. Um, and, and, you know, he's very selfless, uh, in that respect. And, and therefore that was his drive more than anything else, frankly. Did, did Idi Amin have like a, a policy, a deliberate policy of expelling, uh, Indians? <laughs> no, he had a dream, um, that he expelled all the Asians, uh, and woke up in the morning and, and did a press conference and announced it that he's giving everybody 90 days to get out. And he, he put, I think, I don't know, six or eight police checkpoints on the way to the airport to make sure that you're not leaving with a watch or anything valuable or any money or any jewelry or anything that's of any value. Uh, and he had six straight checkpoints to ensure that was stripped off you uh, prior to you going in. And so how did then your parents end up in, in the UK, where I take it you were born? So um, my mother and, you know, had, they, they were British citizens. Um, my mother and my grandmother, my father was a Ugandan citizen. Uh, but my mother and grandmother being British citizens um, obviously went to England um, at the time. And my father went there um, to follow on. Because I, I don't think he fully grasped that this is the permanent situation. I think he still thought and still had hope that something was going to turn around. So he didn't leave with everyone else. He, he left a lot later, a lot later, meaning, you know, I think within, within the year, but not, not a few days later, it was more like a few months later, because I think he just still felt that, you know, it's going to be okay kind of thing. Um, so, so he, he left a lot later and then he went to England to join my mother and my sister, who was 28 days old when they had to leave Uganda. Mm. So she was she was with them as well, and um, and they went from there to um, so he went to England as well, and that's where my other sister uh, and I were born. And so, what did your your family, your parents, do for work while they were in uh, in England? So my father got a job at the Ford factory, working on the factory floor. My mother got a job at the Walkers Crisps factory, a potato chips plant, um, working on the factory floor too. And they built a little bit of capital, um, and they set up a, a small a small business, and they built a little bit more capital and bought a small family home. Um, and that's when it really just hit them, saying, "We just want to go back home, which is to Africa." And so, at that point, I have to imagine, you know, you you were born in the UK. You probably feel pretty pretty English. Like, how how did the news of your parents deciding <laughs> to go back to to Africa hit you? You know, you know, it's amazing, and it's so interesting you ask that because 
my parents would speak in Swahili and Luganda constantly uh, while we were living there. They were constantly, constantly just talking about nothing but Africa. I mean, even though we were born in England, I mean, I partly felt like I, I, I kind of lived through them um, just because that was all we would hear about, all they would talk. I mean, they'd be speaking in the, in the local language, which was Swahili and Luganda a lot of the time. My dad and his friends would speak in nothing but Luganda. So for them, it was like, you know, they had not let go. And I think they, they're one of the very, 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 very few people who didn't let go. Because everyone else really did, um, and hence not not many families returned. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I actually genuinely don't know of any families who got kicked out who came back. So you didn't return with any. You personally didn't return with much apprehension. I take it because your your parents had you know sort of spoken of this promised mythical land. Actually, all of us kind of returned with excitement. To be honest, okay. And so, so where with where did you end excitement. up? Where, where did you go back? So my parents went to Kigali, um, to Rwanda, and I went to, um, I moved to Nairobi uh, just because um, there was no English school in, in Rwanda. So mostly a French country at, at that point, a French-speaking country, right, at that point in the at early 90s? Time, yeah. Yeah, now, now of course, uh, Kagami right. is, is, is um, very much promoting English uh, education in Rwanda these days, but, but right at the mm-hmm. time it was... Very it was, successfully so. Um, but so I have to imagine this is what, the early 90s? Uh, this was 93. 93, 93 so a year before the the disaster and, and, and the genocide. That's right, yeah. Um, so you were living in Nairobi, uh, going to school. Your parents were, were I guess, what, building a, a life for themselves, building a business in Rwanda? Yeah. Um, you know, so um, my parents were in Rwanda. They were... They were kind of getting getting into the whole uh, whole thing in Rwanda, which was they set up a little trading business and uh, and they were loving it. Just being back home, back in the region, back where they belong, they were just absolutely loving it. And then I went for my Easter holidays uh, to go see them, um, and that's you know I went on April fifth and then April sixth, nineteen ninety four is when the genocide started. What do you remember of of that day? I remember clearly, I mean, when I got there in the evening, we went to Hotel de Milcolin. Um, The Hotel Rwanda. The The Hotel Rwanda. Uh, And we went there for uh, for a meal. Um, And I remember we were sitting by the swimming pool. I remember what we ordered, uh, what we ate, and then we went back home. Um, And then after that is when the next day, uh, you know... um, People had called and said, you know, we shouldn't go out. There's a curfew. We shouldn't leave uh, leave home. And then it just started uh, building up and becoming worse and worse. Uh, and you were, what, 14 years old at the time? That's right. So how, I mean, how... I was, I was 13. I was 13 at the time, yeah. I mean, did, did you, like, see, you know, bodies on the street? Did, did, you, did you sort of witness firsthand the early days of, of the genocide as it was unfolding? I did. You know, we, we when we left home uh, to go to, we were taken to Hotel, Hotel de Milcolin, which is Hotel Rwanda. Um, you know, it was horrendous of what we could see on the street. I mean, from our home, we could see people um, getting, um, getting, getting shot, getting um, with these large pangas, which are these large knives, 
uh, getting sliced. I mean, we we saw all of that because our house was on a on a hill, um, so we could see all of that. And then, and, and you know, that that's the amazing thing that, and we could hear gunshots every few minutes. Uh, you'd hear an explosion every every few hours. Um, but that was the amazing thing about about my uh, my parents, uh, knowing that they had a 19 year old daughter and a 13 year old son there. Not knowing whether we're going to come out alive, come out alive or not, not knowing what could happen to the 19-year-old daughter, and then thirdly, on top of everything, um, just you know, about to lose everything again, and not knowing where you're going to go from there because you you have nothing to go back to anywhere. And despite all of that, they just remained really positive and upbeat and playing games with us and. And keeping our minds so occupied on on board games and and things and trivial uh, games, etc., just to kind of not get us thinking too much or, you know, absorb too much into this whole thing. And hence, I mean, it's just when I think about it now, it's just un- unbelievable how they remained so on top of it. Yet there was so much going on in their minds, naturally. And and how I guess did did they know to go to Hotel Mille Colline? Like what 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 drew you there? No, so it, it was the United Nations uh, that took us there. Um, so it was the UN. It was through people calling and stuff, and then figuring out that, and then the UN found out that we're still we're still there, and that's when they collected us from our uh, home and took us to to Hotel de Milcolin. And then the UN was leaving to go by road uh, to Uganda, and my parents just didn't feel safe with that because it's a very long drive, and there was too many things happening on the way that we just didn't feel comfortable to uh, to, to go down that path. Uh, and therefore, instead, uh, we decided to, um, to wait there, and then we were taken by the Belgian army uh, to the French school, which was the Ecole Francaise, and we slept there a few nights, and then we were taken to the airport where we slept a few nights, uh, and then evacuated to Bujumbura. Now, Burundi was under the same situation that Rwanda was, because their president had also been assassinated in the same plane. Um, so so we, we got uh, stuck in Bujumbura for a few days, uh, and then managed to... Uh, get out to Nairobi. Um, and by that time, it was 35 days uh, into the 100 days of my life. You know, so, so your, your, your parents seem to have always emphasized your, your African roots. You've always emphasized your, your African roots. But I wonder if in those, that circumstance, your um, foreign appearance, at least, might have uh, helped your escape or might have enabled your escape in any way. Have, have you ever sort of thought back on that? No, I, I I really haven't. I think you know it's. Um, I think I'm. I was I was truly blessed. I was very lucky that that we did survive it. Uh, it's so easy in these situations uh, to get caught out in any circumstance. Um, we were we were hiding our our Tootsie maid and Tootsie uh, driver at the time, um, and you know I mean just absolutely anything could have happened. We were just really lucky and blessed that we got out okay. And I think as a result, um, what that did more than anything is just make us realize that this should never, ever happen again. And how do we avoid this ever happening again? Um, and I think that thought process really then does kick in and, uh, and gives you more purpose uh, to what you're doing. 
so where did you end up continuing your, your studies? I mean, you're 15 years old, 14 years old at the time. Where did you, where did your family uh, end up eventually? So um, I went back to England to study for a little bit. My parents went to Kampala, uh, back to Uganda, so back full circle, back home. Um, and then I, I decided to, I was just kind of like, um, missing the family and stuff. So I went back to Kampala too, to join them. And I was studying there for a little bit, but, uh, but felt the entrepreneurial bug and, and really because more than anything, my, my parents were just, I could, you know, when I was hanging out with them, I could see family friends inviting my, uh, my other relatives who were still okay in terms of wealth, uh, to their homes, but my father standing next to them and he wouldn't be invited. And just seeing that people were trying to stay away from my parents, scared that if they got too close, my parents may have asked for something. Mm-hmm. And it's almost I like a superstitious that, that, that your parents are, are sort of harbingers of bad luck because they've been through these twin disasters. No, 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 not, not superstitious. Just more of, oh my God, look, if we ask them, are you guys okay? They may say, yeah, but you know, we're, we're a little short of cash. Could you give us a loan? Mm-hmm. And I think it was more just, worried that look when someone has nothing and you ask them how they are they're clearly going to ask for something which my parents would have never have done but that's just not in their nature but when people assume that and as a result keep away from from your family and still my parents were upbeat and fine and positive and genuine you know that's when I felt like I really wanted to and needed to do something to support the family uh, and as a result that's that's when I decided to quit school and, and so the, the, you describe this, this, the scene, the circumstances, uh, in your book, the lion awakes of how you sold your, your first computer. Can you tell that story? I, I, I love it. It's, it's, it's very well told in the book. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I just about convinced my, uh, my parents to get me a computer after bugging them for, for a very long time. And, and they got it in Dubai, right? Managed, your, yep. your, your dad was an That's importer, right. right? He would, he would buy goods in, in Dubai right. and sell them at a store. That's exactly right. So my father, you know, started doing trading again. So buying goods from Dubai and selling them in Uganda. And he was doing the same thing in Rwanda. So he had the connections in Dubai, where to buy the goods from and selling them in Kampala. So then he, he bought a computer for me from Dubai and brought it back for me. And I, you know, I broke it down. I, I dissembled it and then I couldn't assemble it again. It won't work. And then I called this, this engineer who was a woman. She came and she fixed it. Uh, and I called her out of working hours. It was too expensive to call her officially through the business, through her company. Um, and she came and assembled it for me. And I'd call her back two hours later and say, I'm so sorry because I've done it again. I, it's, still, it's still not working. And she should get very upset with me. Like, why the hell are you breaking this down every time? And it was my way of learning how to assemble a computer. Um, and then my father's friend came home for dinner. And he asked me, and he's like, you know, uh, Oh wow, you you got a new computer? I was like, yeah, I've actually got two. And he goes, well, uh, what do you? Why do you have two? And I was like, I'm selling the other one. And he goes, how much for? And I told him, and he's like, oh, that's brilliant. Can you please deliver it for me tomorrow? And I told him how it works for, in terms of how it can help his business, and so he can do his costings and everything on an Excel spreadsheet rather than doing it manually. This is in 1996. Um, so he was over the moon. So while they were having dinner, I, I obviously did not have a second one. So I was cleaning my computer and, and repacking it in the box and emptying the trash recycle bin because I'd deleted all my files and, uh, packed the box and delivered it and made a little bit of money. And, and as a result, I was like, wow, this is amazing. I should, I should do this more often. So every day after school, I would go door to door marketing, um, 
on, on Kampala Road, which was the main high street in Kampala, uh, trying to sell uh, PCs. And then and what, that's you, how it all began. you and your dad would fly to, to Dubai, buy some PCs, and then resell them? So every time they would fly, I, I would I would ask them to, to get it for me. And then when my holidays started and I started doing this full time, I would go there every weekend uh, and fill my suitcase and come back with, with computer parts and stuff and sell Monday to Friday. And then every weekend, keep on going back. Um, and that became my routine. So, And so how did this become like a billion dollar business? It's, um, you know, it's, it's a small but growing group. It's been uh, 20 years this year that Mara turns 20 years old in, in August. Uh, it's been a phenomenal journey. Uh, it's been a lot of hard work, obviously. Um, but it's, you know, I think when you, when you have a genuine and clean intent, uh, things kind of uh, work out. When we met in Dubai, yeah. you said something that, that resonated with me. You, you, um, are known, I suppose, in the press as "quote Africa's youngest billionaire," but <laughs> but you don't like that title. Why why do you um, why do you bristle when when people sort of refer to you as that? I hate that title. Um, I think it's such a such a pompous uh, way to describe someone, and and some people, uh, let's be honest, some people love it, and some people would would even pay for to be you know to have that kind of title in the in the public domain. I absolutely hate it. And, and the reason is, is, I think it's the worst way to measure success. I, I don't want to be known uh, as the person who was driven to make lots of money and made that money, etc. No, in, in my early days of my career, that was the, the only focus for the, for the group. But then it changed completely. I mean, we're, you know, it's a lot more purposeful than that. And, and especially when so many young entrepreneurs and even women entrepreneurs do look up to me and do look up to us as an organization around the world. I mean, predominantly Africa, but now more so globally. And when they look up to us, the, the, the last thing I want them to think is that it's all money driven, meaning, you know, that title is the only thing that, that motivates them. No, I don't want that. I want them to realize that success should be measured by the difference you're making in the world and not by wealth not by numbers, and, and, numbers of a different form. And, and to that end, could you talk a little bit about one of the projects of the, the Mara Foundation that you, you mentioned when, when we met in Dubai a few weeks ago, uh, which was your efforts to, I suppose, use mobile technology to support uh, female entrepreneurs. Uh, what, what is that project all about? How did you, you start that? Sure. So, you know, I mean, starting business at the age of 15 with very little capital, uh, no ability to network, uh, I understood firsthand what it's like being that young entrepreneur in that position. And therefore, how do you truly enable, empower, inspire, and give the right tools for young, to young entrepreneurs and to women entrepreneurs? And as a result, we started the Mara Mentor Program, which is a mentorship platform focused on, on, on the youth and women. And, and women entrepreneurs, particularly in all, all segments, so whether they're public sector, uh, private sector, or entrepreneurs, or intrapreneurs, etc. And how do you truly give them the ability to get guidance, advice, hand-holding, support, training for free on a mobile application? Um, and that became our drive. And we've got thousands of mentors on the platform. It's an application called Mara Mentor, which is available on every app store. And... How does it we work? Have almost, 
it's uh, everybody everybody downloads it for free and then you know entrepreneurs ask questions and they get answers automatically and uh you know people keep on debating and giving them answers and and by, before a mentor even answers a question other mentees uh, answer the question so you know the peer to peer conversation becomes so powerful and relevant over over a period of time that that the mentor to mentee relationship becomes almost irrelevant uh, at that time and um so it works that they, you know they they kind of ask questions. They, there's training programs online. Uh, so so that entire uh, ecosystem really is the is the support structure, uh, and it's been truly phenomenal. And the fact that we have 850,000 mentees on the program today is just it's amazing. We're now, really excited. Is it limited to to Africans, or could anyone uh, who has like an entrepreneurial bug uh, download it? No, it's uh, it's for everyone now. And as the as the UN Foundation's uh, Global Entrepreneurs Council chair, uh, we just had our board meeting, and and mentorship is going to be uh, one of our initiatives that we're going to drive globally, um, leveraging off the diversity of the council uh, council members, but also the UNF so and and the UN ecosystem more broadly. So. So no, absolutely. This is this is a global platform for global entrepreneurs, and I think that's what's really exciting. That an entrepreneur uh, in um, in in a part of the U.S. can put up something, and entrepreneurs from across Africa and Asia and the Middle East can respond, and they can partner and collaborate and do things together and share best practices. I mean, it's such a powerful platform. Um, so it's something we're really, really excited about. And the fact that it's free, free to download and free to use, and there's no agenda apart from impact uh, makes it even more exciting and compelling. Very cool. So so uh, what's next uh, for you then in our, in our last minute or, or two? What's what's on your horizon? Are you going to keep plugging away on, on the foundation side of things or, or kind of keep growing the business or a little bit of both? I, I think it's a combination. I think, um, you know, the Mara Foundation um, – and my and my role at the UNF uh, GEC chair uh, position, I think those two fit in and tie in nicely. Uh, I'm a board member at the Africa Center in New York, um, which is an amazing center that's going to be opening soon. Uh, that I'm I'm very active and passionate about. Uh, my advisory roles uh, for certain heads of state and 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 the World Economic Forum's Global Agenda Council on Africa and and all and all those things working closely with the Africa Development Bank. Um, but at the same time, Mara Group turns 20 years old this year, um, and we're very excited to, and we really genuinely feel, as cheesy as it sounds, that whatever we've done in the last 20 years has kind of set the platform and set the stage uh, for what we're going to do uh, from now onwards. Um, so so we're very, very excited about that. So it's a, I can see it's going to be a very exciting and busy um, and, and rewarding few years, hopefully. All right. Well, Ashish, thank you so much for your time uh, and for sharing your stories and being open and honest and for writing this book too, which, which I, I absolutely recommend people check out, which tells your story, but also uh, the story, I think, more broadly of Africa's really incredible and, and, and rapid economic growth over the last decade. I, I really appreciate it, Mark. Thank you so much for thank taking you. out the time. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Ashish and for the good folk at the Mara Group and Mara Foundation for setting up this interview and for inviting me to their glorious offices in the Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world. It's in Dubai. Their offices are just near the very top of it. And 
the views are pretty, pretty amazing. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.